Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skillawell, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer, and questions can be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer. They are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skillawell. We do deep coaching for tech teams, which is individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one hour chunk. I've been a CTO for the last 10 years. I've run CTO dinners for three years. I've been a CTO coach. And I've seen the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time because context is critical. And I'm really pleased today to be joined by Nick Rogers, who is the VP of Engineering at Wagestream. Hi, Nick. Hey, Hal. Great to be here. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, no, thank you for joining us. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background and your kind of engineering career so far? Yeah. So I, I wrote my, my first line of code probably around 20 years ago. I think it was VBA. Don't judge me too much. I've probably spent the past half decade doing um, management of engineering teams in various forms. I joined Wagestream three years ago, sort of post-Series A, pre-Series B. And obviously, it's been a really interesting journey over the past few years, um, not least because of a small thing called COVID. But we've scaled from, I think, 40 folks when I joined to 240 people now across four different countries. So it's been a really interesting journey to go through. Yeah, and a huge, uh, huge expansion journey, I guess, a huge journey of growth. Yeah, a lot of growth, a lot of change. Well, today we're trying out a different format because you shared with me a talk that you gave about your reflections on your career in software called What's Wrong with the Software Engineering Industry? And I thought it'd make for an interesting podcast to play devil's advocate in response to all of your arguments and see if together we can find some situations where actually that's something that isn't wrong with the software in industry or where the kind of the points you've made perhaps don't hold as strongly. Yes, you're going to tell me all the reasons why I'm wrong, which I'm, I'm looking forward to learning. <laughs> well, I'd like to think we'll work it out together. <laughs> Before we start that, I feel like I should disclose that Waystream is a customer of Skiller Wales, which is how you and I know each other. But also, I think it's important to realize that I've known you for more than a year now. We've had quite a lot of back and forth. I wouldn't normally start a conversation with someone, especially not somebody who's given up their time to be on the podcast, with the specific intention of disagreeing with everything <laughs> that they say. No, I like it. It's a good format. We should, uh, we should do it more often. So there are six points in your presentation. So maybe what we should do is give you an opportunity to talk through each one. So we'll take them one at a time and give you the opportunity to lay out the case for your point. And then we'll talk more about it and probe it and see what we think. So do you want to start with the first one in there? Yep. Um, so the first point is that the engineering life cycle has been sort of decomposed to the point where I think it introduces harm. Um, I'll explain a little bit more about what that means. Um, I think one of my colleagues made an observation a few weeks ago that the majority of developers across the sort of entire globe are actually just pulling tickets out of the ticketing system. And if you go back to you know what engineering is more broadly um, and what engineers do, the US Department of Labor have a great quote that engineers apply the principles of science and mathematics to develop economical solutions to technical problems. Their work is a link between perceived social needs and commercial applications. And I think if you think about that in the context of what a lot of, a lot of folks do in the software engineering industry, you can kind of make a case that a lot of people don't really work as engineers. They work more as kind of programmers. And you can kind of think about programming as kind of subset of, of engineering, a subset of the kind of the broader life cycle of engineering. And then it's worth sort of expanding on what I mean by the life cycle. I think software engineering, regardless of what methodology you use, fundamentally involves the following steps. It involves understanding the problem you're going to solve with software. Um, some folks call that requirements analysis. 
It involves sketching out a rough outline of the software you're going to build. Some folks call that software design. It involves writing all the code. Some people call that implementation. It involves making sure it all works, also known as testing. It involves giving it to people, um, also known as deployment. And it involves making sure it doesn't stop working, also known as operations. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the broad life cycle of it. And is your point that if we break that down too much, we lose the value? That is that what you mean when you say we want engineers or we become developers of, of kind of the implementation part of that rather than engineers with oversight of the whole? Yeah, I think a lot of people who work in software engineering actually work in that kind of the implementation step, the, the writing of code. You know, you've seen, particularly in the waterfall era, you saw sort of separate testing departments, separate operations departments, um, even set, separate sort of architect teams um, that's become a bit more out of vogue recently. And you saw separate sort of like requirements analysts who would go and sort of understand the problems. You saw these different stages of the life cycle sort of decompose into different people's roles. And I think it's that decomposition that, that is harmful specifically in the context of software engineering. Interesting. So I definitely agree to an extent, but that's not the point of this podcast. So let me talk about the extent to which I disagree. I think you need some level of specialization to be effective and efficient. And I think the kind of process that you're talking about there happens on lots of levels at once. So like requirements analysis. Requirements analysis can mean understand the end user and what they need from the product. But it can also mean taking into account what the end user means, what do we need from a technical point of view? And I guess what I'm saying is there's lots of different scopes that our solution, our, under, our requirements have to be understood at, both at the user needs, but also at all of the kind of non-functional requirements and at the understanding of the platform things are going to run on and the understanding of the, the team that's going to be building it. And so I think, isn't there a point for saying that having more specialization will allow us to do a better job and letting software developers, engineers focus on one of those layers of abstraction which is the kind of writing of good software, isn't that going to result in a better outcome? I, th I think it's a fair challenge. And I think it's an interesting trade-off, right? Um, there's a trade-off between you know, the kind of productivity gain of specialization and you know, folks like Frederick Winslow Taylor and Adam Smith have talked about this long before I was around. And there's a trade-off between what, what you lose in that specialization. I guess the sort of key point to drive home is that specialization isn't free. It kind of comes at a cost. I think the cost that it comes at is sort of the handoff between the people. So if you have multiple people that specialize in different roles, you have to hand off things between those people. And I think in the context of where kind of you know, Taylorism was born, that handoff was actually quite cheap, right? You tend to do physical manufacturing. You can have a conveyor belt that brought these kind of partially manufactured products between different workstations. And so that handoff was very cheap and that handoff was automated in some sense. I think the interesting thing about software is that the handoff is very, um, you know, it's, it's handoff of knowledge fundamentally, right? A lot of the intermediate work product is knowledge. And I think the problem with trying to hand off knowledge between people is that's a very lossy, very expensive, very slow process. And so I think there's, there's absolutely benefits to you know, getting people to get really, really, really great at converting Jira tickets into code. But the problem is that comes at the expense of often those folks don't have a deep understanding of the problem they're actually solving for people. And the problem that you get there is that maybe some of the Jira tickets they're building aren't actually necessary. Right? Maybe they're kind of misscoped and they're, they're the wrong feature and the wrong, wrong articulation. Maybe there's a much, much easier way to solve the problem. Maybe there's a an easier, quicker way to deliver that value to the person. And I think when you start to cut into different people's heads, you lose that end-to-end -end view, which often means you can end up in kind of a suboptimal solution. Mm. I wholeheartedly agree about Taylorism as being the wrong path for us to work down, right? The idea of the kind of factory model of production doesn't make sense for software because, I mean, you're right about the kind of the comparison between a conveyor belt versus 
communication because we work in knowledge work. But I think an even bigger difference, to me at least, is that the output from a factory is what's defined in advance. You know, that the production line is all set up in order to create the known object, where actually in software development, the thing that we're optimizing for is creation of an unknown object. We, we're kind of aiming to discover that as we go. And so I think our processes have to be different to reflect that. But it's an interesting framing because I think, you know, a lot of processes kind of involve the, the creation of Jira tickets and then the conversion of those Jira tickets into code. And I kind of think that's a, another example of actually where the, the Jira ticket specifies the output. And then all you do thereafter is convert the output into code. And I think that is an example of kind of wedded to the, the kind of Taylorist ideology. And I, I think in, in defense of Taylorism, I should add that, you know, a lot of modern living standards are because of the huge productivity gains through the 20th century, through the increasing productivity in factories. So Frederick Winslow Taylor, I think, achieved a great deal, probably much more than me. But I think, you know, as you mentioned, it's, I think once you start applying the same principles within the domain of software engineering, I think that's when it starts to drive towards less good outcomes rather than better outcomes. Certainly, I think many people could stand to improve their handoffs. I've seen, I mean, I don't want to pick on Jira, but I've, I've seen kind of handoff points, which so happen to have been contained in Jira, that are really thorough and link back to a kind of understanding of the user and let developer, engineer, see the context of the, and understand the context of where their work is going to apply. It's interesting because I know we're in the set going to talk about scale. And I think we have to have things like this in order to scale. We have to have people who are specializing at some part of that so that someone's whole job can be to go off and understand the different requirements and balance them and, and prioritize what we should be building. And someone's whole job can be understanding the user and make sure we build it in the right way. I like that it's someone else's whole job to work out how we build our software in the best way to enable that kind of agility and change and response to new requirements. Yeah, I, I think to the point of sort of making the handoff better, I think there's been there's lots that's, that's been written about how to make handoffs really effective. And I think the way to do it is really small teams where you have these different people with the different specialisms kind of all under the same roof, talking to each other regularly, building a relationship, even having daily stand-ups so that you can kind of get that knowledge on an incremental basis. I think where it works really badly is you know, the old waterfall way where you kind of have one person create a 145-page document that they hand off to the next person and they have to try and digest it. You know, a lot of the recent learning is sort of taken into account of you know, this, this handoff is bad and difficult. I think the kind of the more interesting, controversial thing is what if we just get rid of the handoff? I, I have a prediction, which is is that you, you lose some level of alignment across a, a larger organization. But I don't know. I haven't tried it. Um, I think I feel like what we do agree on is that we think decomposition is bad when the people stop talking to each other, right? Silos are bad. Having the kind of product team over in their office throwing requirements over the wall to the engineering team, that sort of decomposition is very much terrible. A decomposition of roles of people who work together and like collaborate and communicate. One person happens to be called the product manager and one is an architect that can be okay. Yeah, I mean, I can actually, I can mount to, to, to reverse the devil's advocate positions. I can, I can actually mount a defense for silos, which is, I think, is as businesses scale, you naturally, you know, you accrete more complexity and you get these more and more complex organizations. And you need a way of kind of managing the, the complexity. And the way you do that is you divide it into, into segments, right? Segments of complexity. Mm. And then you sort of have a, have a bit less complexity locally because you don't have to interact with the whole thing. And I think that is the silo, right? Create these silos so that people can achieve hopefully some specific business outcomes that are kind of meaningful without having to understand and interact with the entire business. And so I think silos, to some extent, are kind of inevitable. 
I think what we've learned through kind of like the, I guess the early part of the 21st century is that what you want is kind of like a horizontal silo, not a vertical silo, right? You want a horizontal silo where you have your cross-functional team aligned around a business problem rather than you know, these big functional departments of like, you know, engineering and product and design and marketing. But I think silos are to some degree unavoidable at a, at a certain scale. I feel like this is sounding like I'm misusing the word silo because I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. And so I think I must have been using it wrongly before. I, I think basically it's about the communication. If those people have really different roles but are communicating with each other closely, then I think that sounds great. And I think that's your kind of horizontal silo model is that cross-functional team where those people are in constant collaboration, even if they have decomposed roles. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we should move on to, to your yes. next point. Number two, engineers often optimize for the wrong things. So I think what you often see is that engineers sort of optimize in favor of making things neat or in terms of sort of things that concern them personally, right? Things that they don't like about the system. And I think fundamentally the task of a professional engineer is to produce value for customers, right? And produce value for the business that employs them. And so ideally, engineers and and everyone in the business, in fact, should optimize in favor of maximizing business value not in favor of sort of minimizing you know, your own personal pet peeves about things, you know, like a, a particular function is maybe badly implemented. Um, but I, I think in, in fairness to engineers, if you, you know, if you don't have clear visibility of the overall problem, if you do have all of those handoffs, then you, you're not really well-placed to actually optimize for the whole solution because you can't see it. And so you know, if you're only left sort of just writing, writing out a Jira ticket by Jira ticket, what else can you really do but sort of optimize to make that process as pleasant as possible? It's very interesting. So the way you frame this point, engineers optimize for the wrong things, is raises the question of what the wrong things are. Because I think you're right that at one extreme, engineers can optimize for for the kind of the engineering technical brilliance of what they've created, which I think over a certain time scale matters more and can pay back more than optimizing for hitting deadlines today. You know, you talked about the function that someone really hates because it's poorly written maybe that takes a day to rewrite now but in a year when you are debugging some i don't know high priority nightmare bug that someone's just discovered that function being well written saves you two days i realize it's impossible to kind of predict that in advance but i think there is there is something about those engineering instincts which we should value and i say that we recently recorded an episode of this podcast, which hopefully some people will have listened to by the time they hear this, where we talked about occasions where engineers didn't have enough influence. And so that in kind of physical engineering, that is how you end up with, with things like the, the Challenger space shuttle disaster, where uh, engineers who had concerns weren't properly listened to because of political pressure. Similarly, in former USSR engineers, developing their nuclear reactors weren't listened to about what the warning signs about the kind of az5 automatic shutdown button which then caused chernobyl and so most of the time in software engineering i think the, the bad outcomes when things go wrong are not as dramatic as that sometimes they are but still sometimes engineers should be listened to more yeah, and I, I look forward to listening to that podcast when it comes out because I think we agree that engineers should be listened to more. And I think maybe one of the reasons they aren't listened to is because you have, you know, that that specialization and, and other folks at the top of the funnel listen to a bit more than folks in the middle of the funnel. But I think, um, you know, on the, on the question, on the sort of point before about does it pay off eventually? I, I, I worry, and yeah, I guess what I've seen sort of observationally is that 
the kind of justification of it'll pay off eventually is, is used as a bit of a blank check to justify lots of things. And I think one of the things that we try and do on our team is really kind of think explicitly about what payback period do we want to achieve with our investments. And the kind of mm. rough guide we use is we want to pay back in two years. So do we have sort of a reasonable belief right now, if we make this change right now, we'll accrue the benefits from this change within a 24-month period? Um, and that's, that's a nice kind of like forcing function to keep you honest and make sure that you're, you're doing things for the right reasons. And bear in mind that people will still be quite optimistic about that as well, right? Um, so it's still, it still provides some leeway. But I think, I think having a kind of blank check where we go in and make things neat for the sake of it um, and possibly also you know, risk causing regressions and, and worsening the customer experience right now, I think sometimes that could be counterproductive when a, a more productive way to spend your time is spending more time, you know, more time with the customer, more time with the users, understanding their problems, understanding how you can implement a, you know, a fundamentally much simpler solution rather than just a much simpler function on the specific lines of code you're looking at. Mm, yeah, I think that's really fair. You definitely, definitely don't want to give people a blank check because that means they can take their eye off the real value of what they're making. Right? If the sort of the extreme bad version of this is where people just want perfection before anything even ships, and then you're getting zero value from all the work you've done until your engineers are kind of happy to say it's it's perfect and pristine. At which point, you know, the market has moved on, your users have got bored and gone away. And I really like the idea of having a specific time horizon. You pay, you pay that. You want to pay back that work. You want that work to pay for itself. In it yes. reminds me a lot particularly because you talked about it in terms of an investment, it reminded me a lot of the metaphor of technical debt, which I think some people have never kind of sort of spelled out to themselves why this metaphor exists, but it's simply that you're you're basically taking a loan on your code today and that loan is going to accrue interest over time. So when you pay it back, it's going to be harder. It's, it's going to be a bigger number of loan. The, the amount you have to pay back is bigger. And the kind of code version of that is we kind of live with this version of the code, which we, this structure, which we know is getting in our way now, it makes things slightly harder and it will be harder to fix it in the future because it's going to have accrued interest because more stuff is going to be built up around it. Yeah, I, I like to think about sort of technical debt in terms of kind of accidental complexity, you know, the complexity over and above the essential complexity you need for the system. And obviously, as you get more and more complexity, that sort of slows you down in lots of ways and you want to try and minimize that and avoid that. But I also wonder, and this is maybe slightly controversial, but I, I wonder on the technical debt front, I was, kind of, I, was, I was meeting with a colleague the other day, how much technical debt accrues as a result of bad decisions versus the technical debt that accrues as a result of intentionally making a short-term trade-off. I think the former, in my experience, and maybe I'm a particularly bad engineer, it's always possible, I think the former, in my experience, has always outweighed the latter, which is to say that bad decisions at the time, not even necessarily because they're rushed, but just because it was a bad decision, that creates sometimes the most substantial technical debt of all. Those things sort of like you know, big, big architectural mistakes where you go down a certain path, Knowing then what you did now, you, you wouldn't have gone down that path, um, but you went down that path and you accrued a, a huge amount of debt. I think some organizations playing around with microservices at very early stage might be a good example of how you can accrue a lot of technical debt just by making a, a poor decision. And I think, by the way, that's why this podcast is particularly interesting to try and talk through um, some of these more challenging decision areas um, to sort of share that context across the industry. I think technical debt has more than accidental complexity in it. I think it can come from a, a sort of simplification of the the domain that you end up working around and around. So it's not really kind of accidental complexity. It's almost accidental simplicity that has become complexity because you work around it, which I feel like isn't quite the same thing. Possibly. It might be a semantics thing. It might mm. be different. 
perhaps we might lack the time to really explore that one. That's one, one, one for another episode. Fair enough. But where I was going with this is that my understanding is that when Ward Cunningham came up with the metaphor for technical debt, his intention was that as soon as you recognized it, you would resolve it. That it was a thing that you would notice and then you would do work to resolve it before you did the work that built on it. So I've come along, I've noticed the code works like this, I need it to work like that. So I need to resolve this technical debt. And that's just part of this work. And the idea of deferral, I think, was not built in then. It was it was kind of backwards looking. We did things that way, which I don't know. Is it a bad decision if you have more information today? I, I don't think so. If it was a good decision at the time, I, I don't call that a bad decision. But it, it, it depends what you mean a good decision at the time, because I think it, it can be a good decision in the context of the information you have at the time. But if it's a, it can be a bad decision in the context of the competency that you had at the time. Because, you know, competency is a very, you, you can be great at lots of things and terrible at lots of other things. Um, and I think one of the areas I've always made sort of the worst mistakes in my career, I guess, is when I'm I'm making decisions in areas where I have low competency. Mm. Um, and those are the ones that I, I tend to come to regret. Not, not all of them, right? Some of them turn out to be good. I get a bit lucky. Um, but some of them turn out to be bad and I get a bit unlucky in some sense. Um, and it's those ones that often cause the most debt in some sense because those are the ones I want to reverse later when I grow that competency into, and realize the decision might have been a mistake. Should we move on to the next point then? Point number three, too much following the herd. So I should just start with a defense of following the herd. You know, I think following the herd isn't wrong. It can be really useful. It's kind of a, a mechanism for information transmission in, in crowds, right, in social situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I see a load of people running down the street towards me screaming, I'm probably going to turn around and run with them. That's kind of me following the herd, and it's a, a self-preservation technique. But I think in in engineering context, in professional context, um, sometimes we do suffer from a little bit of groupthink. And I think sometimes in the engineering industry, that's because something that works really well in one context is kind of amplified as a silver bullet that will kind of massively improve the outcome in every situation, regardless of context. And I think, you know, there's been a few different examples of this throughout time, things like TDD, microservices, NoSQL, RRMs, even Scrum, OKRs, Kubernetes, um, lots of things. They kind of get amplified as this brand new thing that will solve all your problems. And actually, they are themselves a trade-off, right? They, they add a lot of value in some situations, and they maybe um, cause some complexity and cause some pain in other situations. What we would do well to do as engineers is be a little bit skeptical of the thing that everyone's shouting about as being great and really understand the trade-off, really understand um, you know, the context other people have used it in, whether it's the right tool for you in your context. I mean, you're pitching this podcast, so I don't want to disagree with you too strongly because <laughs> that, that, I mean, that kind of decision and that sort of thinking is definitely one reason that we exist. And one of the reasons this point is hard to argue against is because you framed it as too much following the herd. And I think, well, too much of anything is bad by definition, otherwise you wouldn't say it was too much. But I think, I think there is a point that following the herd is often a sensible starting point. People talk about innovation points that every every organization has has so many points where they can do something weird and wacky and different from the norm and that you are basically spending one of those innovation points when you decide to adopt a bleeding edge technology or when you use a non-standard database layer. All of those things use up some innovation points. And if you end up using a non-standard database layer, not deploying in cloud, using the bleeding edge version of not Kubernetes, but whatever is like the kind of secondary competitor to Kubernetes, and you decide that all of your team are going to organize in like their own methodology that's somewhere between XP and Scrum and Kanban, then suddenly you've, you've used up all your innovation points and it'll be very difficult for you to spend any on your actual product, for example. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think there is a point in following the herd being a good idea. I agree about the kind of the hype train. I, I like that you titled one of these slides, uh, Hype Trains and Professional Malpractice, which was a link I hadn't seen before, but makes sense to me because, yeah, that the hype is very real for some of these things and they are easily overdone. Yeah, I think it's about just sort of nursing a degree of sort of healthy scepticism towards hype, if that makes sense. It's not to say all hype is wrong, um, but some hype certainly is sometimes done. Should we move on to your next point? Yep, I'm going to change it a little bit, but I'll, uh, I think it's number four, and I'll, I'll talk about discounting the scale. So I think one of the things that, that's sort of interesting about software is it scales really well, right? It kind of has a very low marginal cost of replication and marginal cost of distribution. But I think software engineering itself doesn't scale that well. I think to sort of extrapolate that to a more general statement, I think design work in the abstract doesn't scale that well. So design work sort of like, you know, whether it's sort of architecture of designing buildings, whether it's designing cars, whether it's designing software, I think sort of design work just doesn't scale well to lots of people. I think it doesn't scale well because it requires ultimately kind of building a shared mental model of what you're building. And that requires a lot of communication. It requires a lot of coordination. And I think as you go from you know, one person to two people to four people to you know, 20, 50, 100, 1,000, it gets really hard to kind of build that model coherently. And so you see sort of small teams being very effective. And that lack of sort of you know, the diseconomies of scale of software engineering is really interesting in the context of technology startups because as you grow and as you sort of become more successful, you tend to hire more people. Um, and the, the sort of the whole purpose of hiring more people is to ultimately deliver more stuff. But you run into this design constraint where it actually becomes more and more difficult to deliver. And sort of you get this problem with like the, you know, the declining marginal productivity of each additional engineer as you join the team. Mm. Um, and so the interesting challenge there is sort of how you design your organization to sort of contain and minimize this effect. And I think you know, that's where Amazon and AWS have done a great job. Jeff Bezos championing two pizza teams. What you want to have is lots of small relatively independent teams, and that's kind of talking about our like horizontal silos they're talking about before, where they can deliver something useful to customers across a small number of people um, without having to collaborate across, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of engineers. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's the team size, but it's also the saying that teams should have kind of APIs and SLAs between them. And that should be the kind of primary mode of communication, which is, is I think, designed to exactly that makes make the human side of engineering scale as the software side does it's funny that we just talked about hype trains being the problem and now we're talking about microservices as being the solution which very much was its own hype train when it comes to microservices i think microservices is a great example of of that hype train practice right i think it works really well in amazon's context where you have hundreds of teams and tens of thousands of engineers i think when you then see people copy it into a context where you have two or three engineers and they end up with 40 or 50 microservices that's an example of a very, a very different, a very different context where it's probably not the right choice at that juncture. That's definitely true. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I guess I'm wondering here because my role here is to play devil's advocate. Is this really a problem with the software industry, or is this just a problem with humans? Anything where you have to think holistically, and I think that's what this comes down to. Is like design requires a kind of general sense of the whole. Like that's just hard with people, right? N people have N squared, roughly, communication channels between them. So twice as many people is four times as many channels, and that's hard to scale. It's a good challenge. I guess the, the criticism of the industry is, I think lots of companies realize this very late, and you really want to sort of build your organization with this in mind. So I think you see some companies, without being directly because of anything, accruing more and more engineers without really thinking about how do they build the organization, how do they build their technical architecture to facilitate these folks. And actually, you just get this you know, massive drop-off in per-person productivity. And so that's my criticism of you need to really think about this discipline as a scale sort of from the ground up as you build a company. 
Mm. And so you're thinking if that's worse than if you're like a sales team, you know, you're doubling the size of your sales team, you won't see the same drop off in per person productivity. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm uh, very far away from being a sales expert, as anyone who knows me will attest. Um, <laughs> but I, th- I think the nice thing about sales from afar is that you can kind of you can kind of segment the space of different people, right? So if you're doing B two B sales, you can give accounts to different sales folks, and that that gives a bit of independence between the sales folks that reduces the degree of coordination. I think that's what allows sales to be a bit more scalable than than software engineering. Mm, right, software engineering is definitely a team sport, and as your team gets larger, it's harder to. Yes. The interdependencies between people make it harder. You don't see very many sort of team sports on telly where they have like a thousand person teams. I think that's, that's for a good reason. Yeah, yeah, true. Although I would watch that. Let's move on to the next point you made. So uh, I'll, I'll skip to, to overhiring, um, number five. And this is kind of related to um, the previous point in some sense. I think, you know, a, a key characteristic of startups, you know, almost like a definitional characteristic of, of startups is it's high revenue growth, right? It's high growth, high revenue growth. Um, but a related characteristic for many startups is high headcount growth. And that kind of makes sense because as you grow, you um, deliver more goods and services, you need more people to deliver those goods and services. Um, so you kind of expect something between them. Although what you often see is that a lot of scale-ups kind of reach a point where they hire not out of necessity, but out of habit. Um, and you see this kind of effect where you, you go through funding rounds, you, you get capital, and then you put that capital to work by hiring people. But you don't necessarily have a clear idea of what those people are going to do. And I think, you know, going back to that previous point, Software scales really well, right? One of the great things about software is that you can provide sort of service to a marginal user with ideally no real kind of first-party labor cost, right? No, no additional labor on, on behalf of your company. And you can kind of see that with you know, Instagram's teams and WhatsApp's teams where you know, between 8 and 30 people, they manage to service kind of a billion users. And so that software is incredibly scalable. But what you see you know, outside of those two contexts is that you see organizations maybe with quite simple stacks hiring thousands or tens of thousands of engineers. And, you know, you saw Elon's comments recently about Twitter and his various intents there that may or may not turn out to, to happen. But I think it's, it's questionable when, even when you have quite large-scale stacks, whether you need the level of sort of engineering headcount that you have. And also, I think you know, there's, there's many companies that are much smaller than, than organizations like Twitter, and you don't necessarily need thousands of engineers nowadays to build a bank that's sort of the joy of modern software is that you can actually achieve that outcome with many fewer people i think if you just sort of measure it on like product innovation what you kind of expect is that as you hire more people particularly more software engineers that the breadth of your product is kind of like a function of the number of engineers you have but actually what you see is most of the sort of product is developed in the very early years when they have very few people and then as they get bigger they have many more people but the product doesn't change that much and that's that's kind of like an interesting effect hmm I think that's that's generally true. I think that's often because as you mature, all of those kind of non-functional requirements get harder. All of the, you know, you're suddenly in like compliance regimes that you weren't in before. It's interesting though. I So you've offered examples of kind of two extremes of, of this, like the kind of the Instagram and WhatsApp. And as soon as you started talking about this, mind went exactly to those two. And I've had other people bring up at least one of those before in terms of the kind of model to aim for in, in organizing an engineering team. And I worry that if between us, we can only ever name two companies who have achieved that success with a really small team, then it doesn't feel like a very repeatable model. Because I think those are kind of social network companies. They were sort of focused around doing a relatively small feature set very, very well. And not every company has that 
I don't know if that's a luxury, but has that demand on them that they can do one small thing well? I think it's a fair challenge. I think that's, you know, it's also kind of fair to say something that's very rare in our industry, perhaps rarer than it should be, is companies that are actually profitable. You know, they were you know, producing a huge amount of value across a huge number of people at, at a relatively early stage. And what is equally as rare as, as those guys doing that on a small scale is, is companies actually turning a profit on the software that's used by millions of people. Um, you know, even, even quite mature companies nowadays, and I, again, won't, won't pick on particular names, still struggle to be profitable. And I think you know, that, that's sort of linked to this point of overhiring. If you, if you hire thousands and, t- and tens of thousands of people and you have to pay all of them, it's incredibly hard to be profitable on that basis. Whereas if you only have eight or you know, 30 engineers, and I'm not saying you know, every company can get away with 30 engineers, but if you only have eight or 30 engineers, it's a, it's a lot easier to be profitable, right? Your cost base is, is dramatically lower than it would be otherwise. That's definitely true. I guess I'm, I'm nervous of picking on a financial model here because this is, if we're talking about the problems in engineering, then I think hiring lots of people isn't necessarily overhiring. That's absolutely correct, yes. Overhiring might mean we've got lots of ambition, we've suddenly got lots of capital, and so we think we can achieve this. And then we have to let lots of people go because it turns out we were completely wrong and our ambition was, was too high. I, I think hiring lots of people and then laying off lots of people is an example of, of a poor management practice, right? You're by nef- definition wasting lots of capital, if nothing else, right? To say nothing of the human costs where you're, you're messing around with people's careers. And so I think that's a good example where you should maybe hire a little bit more slowly. You should build up sort of your team as you build up your confidence. And that is both, you know, it's kind of like a win-win-win, right? It's, it's more capitally efficient. Your investors will like it. You take that less dilution, right? You'll like it as a founder. And also you have, you know, you avoid the negative impact on lots of people's lives. Um, so all your staff like it. I suspect the companies that are doing that and adopting that strategy are feeling under competitive pressure because I think that's often the main driver for people who want to grow incredibly fast is out innovating the other company um, that is trying to do the same thing. And so if if they're doing five projects, then we're going to do the same five projects and five of our own. And so we're going to hire all of these people. It's it's sort of interesting that it looks back with the discount of the scale point which is, you know, you, you might think that you can out-compete your competitor by having more people, but maybe you're actually going to hit this discount of the scale where more people slow you down. And the second thing I'd say is that I think that was really true in, you know, 2020, 2021, right, when you had these massive capital raises and you kind of had to be in it to win it. I think it's a very different world now. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a real focus on fundamentals and profitability. And I think that you'll see a slightly more rational approach to, to problem solving than we've maybe seen in the past couple of years. I think that's probably true. But I think this has generally been the case in at least in the kind of startup and scale-up world, that people do raise loads of money, they do hire fast, and some of them are just wrong about what they can achieve with those people. And some of them are right and become Facebook or Google. I, I think that's that's fair at like a seed stage and a Series A stage and a Series B stage. I think when you're raising $400 million rounds um, and then mm. it turns out you're wrong, <laughs> I think it's, you know, to say like, oh, well, things happen, I think is a lack of a bit of accountability. That's fair. Uh, I think that's that's a lot of money to be wrong with. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I hope that we and our listeners are never quite so wrong in, in quite such a... Yes, I, I, made, I, made, I made some bad mistakes, but I've yet to make a $100 million mistake, and I hope, uh, I hope it stays that way. Yeah, let's keep it that way. Let's move on to your next and final point. So number six, the last and, and final point, unrepresentative interview processes. And I'm, uh, I'm really interested to see if you can argue against this one. So I think many interview processes couple themselves to specific but arbitrary knowledge. And that's you know sort of stuff that might be known by the candidates depending on whether or not they've had some specific experience, but sort of by itself provides very little predictive power of a candidate's ability to do their job. Um, and I think you know fundamentally, if you look at what problem interviews are trying to solve, you're trying to solve the problem of predicting how a person might perform in a completely different context over the next couple of years 
and you're trying to do that based on you know like a 45 minute exercise you work through with people so there will always be slightly flawed things but i think having an interview process which is very unrepresentative so you know it's a closed book exercise which you have to do with someone watching over your shoulder and you can't use google and you can't use stack overflow and it's going to test your your knowledge of algorithms that you might not have done since university 10 years ago um, i think those sorts of exercises are arguably quite unhelpful and a little bit of a waste of folks time interesting but this is specifically about interview processes that are not that are based on like not the job yeah fun- fundamentally versus you know the way we try and run our processes which is generally we, we try and find problems that we've encountered in our actual work that we think would would work quite well in a short interview right something that you can sort of provide the context to and tackle within kind of an hour long space and then we also try and be flexible about you know, you're welcome to use google you're welcome to use stack overflow you're welcome to use the internet work as you normally would as an engineer you're welcome to use the interviewer as a peer and ask them questions and i think that's a, a much more representative environment to how folks will actually work it's still you know it's still only 60 minutes and it's it's not going to be that representative in the next two years um, but i think it provides a more reliable signal than getting someone to you know invert a binary tree mm. i think I think people perform differently at different things. And so you might be right that this is a more, well, I think you are right that this is a more reliable signal. But I think there'll be some people who find it much easier to sort of recall the like algorithm to invert a binary tree and much harder to think on the spot about solving a problem in a domain they've never seen before. Like ultimately, I think however your interview process works, it will bias against some group of people i don't think you can have an unbiased interview process i think that part of what we try and do is make that bias small and make sure that that bias isn't related to kind of like protected characteristics or social demographics or things that we want to make sure that our team is representative of yeah it's an interesting framing bias is obviously a very loaded word Mm -hmm. but i do think in some sense the whole point of an interview process is to bias in favor of great candidates right Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to try and lay down what, what does it mean to be a great candidate, right? What are the, the traits that you want a great candidate to have? And you need to build some system to sort of detect those traits. And that might be things like being able to interact quickly with, an uns- you know, with a new domain with great uncertainty and, and come up with great answers. That might be something that's actually really important in the context you're working in. So I think the, the art then is coming up with an interview process that ultimately gets what you want. But I think a lot of companies sort of cargo cult, you know, interview processes have been popularized by big tech, which are very algorithmic problem heavy, when actually most of the jobs don't actually involve a huge amount of algorithmic data structure manipulation. Um, and actually, those interview processes are not actually detecting the characteristics that those companies do actually want. Yes and no. I, I think those things are, are generally bad, and I don't do any of them. But I think there are some <laughs> companies where they are a good idea. So, for example, if you are being hired relatively early on at one of those tech giants, having the ability to think in a very abstract way, which is what algorithmic problems often test, especially if it's an algorithm you haven't seen before, is possibly a good predictor of your ability to make a real meaningful contribution to the the company's code base that ends up being used by half of Google's products. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I get sort of like citation needed. But um, I, I think one of the problems with that is that it's great if no one has ever seen the problem before. But the problem that you have is that some people will have solved similar problems in the past. 
and some people won't have. And your process will be incredibly biased in favor of those who have seen a similar problem before and go, oh, you know, I've, I've done that already. I know how to do that. And the, the way, you know, you, the way you can adjust that is, okay, do, do lots of different problems, right? Do like six different problems and then some might be great at one, but then we create others. And that's maybe how you end up with the, uh, the 14-stage interview process. I think, you know, kind of citation needed on, does it actually measure abstract thinking? And does that abstract thinking actually correlate with performance in the job over some period of time? It depends on your workforce. I do think like for the vast majority of us who are kind of writing code, but not kind of nitty gritty code that's going to be used by a billion people a day and needs to kind of be maximally performant. And we need to kind of have, be inventing our own data structures to, to sort of stay as high performance as possible. That stuff isn't relevant. I think some of it is relevant. I think, you know, when when companies are producing their own, I saw like the other day that I think it's OpenAI or someone is developing their own new uh, storage format for floating point decimals because they, they have come up with some new format which is going to be slightly more optimal for use in GPUs for machine learning. That kind of thing, that kind of insight comes from people with really strong theory. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's not... It, it's not to say I'm arguing against theory. You know, I, I studied computer science, um, so that would be slightly hypocritical of me, if nothing else. But it's more to argue against, are you getting a great measure of that person's knowledge of theory or, or suitability of the role more broadly with that specific exercise? Um, you know, I think th- th- theory is really just sort of like a, a distillation of everything we've learned to date, right? And, and absolutely, that knowledge should be useful, hopefully, in certain circumstances. But I still question whether the interview process actually detects that or whether the thing that makes you really great at solving those kinds of problems is a rich knowledge of the domain that you actually maybe need to build up over many years at the firm, many years looking at the problem. Um, in that context, you're never really going to detect it in the at all. Interesting. Google have moved away from this as an approach after they rejected me, after I applied as a 21-year-old, by the way. They, they don't do this anymore. And I suspect there's a good reason why. But it kind of makes sense to me that in some specific cases, you might get more of a sense of someone's abstract ability to theorize and come up with incredibly creative new computer science type ideas if you ask those kinds of questions. For the vast majority of jobs, what we're looking for is not that person. And so that doesn't make sense. I rest my case with you as my argument. If they were uh, silly enough to reject you, then obviously their interview process is fundamentally flawed. Oh, okay. That, I mean, that is going to have to be the point where we stop this conversation. That is too much flattery for me to take. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Annette, like going back and forth on some of these points. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Hal. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was really, really interesting. Thanks for your time. Um, I do just want to mention that Waystream are hiring. We're hiring at all levels. So if any of the conversation today has been interesting to your listeners, then it'd be great if they could check out our website, waystream.com, check out our job postings. Please apply and get in touch. Looking forward to hearing from you.